Hey, we are in the final week of our series on emotional intelligence, and we're going to do something a little bit different today. I've got these two chairs up here, and the reason why is because I've asked my wife to come up and join me uh, as we talk about uh, EQ, applying EQ in our everyday life. So if you don't know my wife, she's the worship leader. Her name is Crystal Uh, and I love her very much, and she has some wisdom to speak on this with me as we apply emotional intelligence to our everyday lives. But before we get into that, I wanted to just give you a little bit of a reminder of what EQ is. If if this is your first week back, um, or if you haven't been throughout this series, or if you just need a reminder, EQ is emotional and quotient, like IQ would be intelligence quotient, like measuring how you are emotionally and how you handle things emotionally. Like emotional intelligence is the word that we use. And oftentimes I would, I would think that people are like, why are we talking about this in church? It sounds like pop psychology or something like that. And, and what I want to help you understand is that God wants us to be emotionally intelligent. Now, that word isn't in the Bible, but we're going to go through the Bible and find out that God wants us to learn how to love people, how to be self-aware, how to know how, how our personalities and what comes out of us and how we deal with emotions affects you and it affects other people. And so uh, EQ measures your emotional and relational health. It's the ability to know yourself, to empathize with others. So we're in the last week, the fifth week of our EQ series, and honey, I just wanted to ask you a question. How have you felt this series has impacted you, or how do you think the church has been reacting to emotional intelligence? Test. Okay, we're on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I would say I think that um, this sermon series has unintentionally maybe ruffled some feathers. There were some sermons I was, after you were done preaching, I was, you know, for the rest of the day worried about the text you were going to get. And (laughs) (laughs) I was glad when another pastor came down and preached it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So you could not get any text that day. No, um, I think it was convicting and challenging for all of us, myself included, and being more aware and thinking about these things. Yeah, I've had some great feedback from some of you guys about how you've liked this series. Maybe some of you guys are going to a small group or something like that, and you've got to talk a little bit deeper about these things, things that don't normally get talked about often, especially if you're anything like me. I hate talking about my emotional life. I, I uh, pretend like I don't have one sometimes, and I try to stuff it and get rid of it. So Uh, And I will be, I'm just going to be honest with you today, I am super, super glad that this is the last week in the Emotional Intelligence Series. Uh, uh, Not that we haven't gained a lot from it, but I am glad because our next series, I'll be talking about that at the end, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, Christmas, but we're going to talk about Isaiah 9-6, the prophecy of uh, Jesus' name, you know, it says he's going to be, he will be called is the series of the sermon that we're going to talk about four weeks in uh, different names that Jesus was given in the Old Testament. So I am very excited about that, uh, but we got to make it through this last, we got to make it through this last session on emotional intelligence. And so that's why I asked my wife to come up here because we're going to 
we're going to apply it to everyday life. How do I do it in certain relationships? And so we're going to look at uh, the marriage relationship. How do we apply EQ in marriage? How do we apply it in parenting? How do we apply it at work? And how do we apply it in our friendships? And so that's why I asked my wife to come up and at least help me with the first two because uh, she is the one that helps remind me how to be emotionally intelligent in those two first relationships. And so let's talk about, oh, and one other thing I wanted to say is uh, you could follow along with this uh, on PursueGod.org. This is the website. We're just going to, if you could scroll down a little bit on that, we're just going to go over these same talking points that are right there. You see those there? This this is what we use in small groups. This is what we use in mentoring. And so I'm going to do this same thing with my wife. We're going to talk through these talking points together. And the first one then is this, an emotionally healthy spouse expresses their needs clearly and chooses to put the needs of their spouse above their own. You see, you know, oftentimes uh, in marriage, we've been married for almost 10 years, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, We've been married for almost 10 years and we tend to, when you've been with someone for so long, you tend to think that you guys can read each other's minds, right? We've been together so long. You know me. You should know better when you do this or that, right? There's these mind reading. And then there's these expectations of uh, you, should, you should know that this is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I like. But, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I mean, especially, you know, in our relationship, sometimes your needs and your wants and your desires, they change over the years, right? And love languages change sometimes, and so we can't always keep up, and we can't mind read. That is a myth. We want to be able to express our emotions clearly to one another. And so is there, how can we improve in our communication with one another, would you say, Crystal? Well, I was going to say that... um I think I've realized that it's important that I say I need, uh, where I'm very, very clear. Like even if we're getting ready to have a conversation, I'm, I'm going to tell him ahead of time what I need from the conversation. Otherwise he's going to try and fix, you know, whatever I'm telling him, he's going to try and fix the problem. But (laughs) sometimes I'll start the conversation with, I really need to talk to you. I don't want you to fix it. I just need you to be compassionate. And he's gotten really good at being able to do that. So then I'm able to tell him, what I'm struggling with, and he'll end with, man, that really sucks. And it's just perfect. It's what I needed. <laughs> I just needed him to feel a little sorry for me or be compassionate. I didn't need him to fix the problem. But he wouldn't have known unless I told him, like, that's what I need. He would have tried to fix the problem. Yeah, and she, she actually told me that a long time ago. She said, you know what? I don't need you to fix it. She said, I really just need you to say man, that really sucks. And so, I mean, that's not in my normal vocabulary, but, you know, if that's what she wants me to say, I'm going to say it because that's what she needs, right? So is there a, an example of where you needed to speak clearly? Another example that recently happened, I'm thinking of the printer situation. Yeah, so <laughs> just recently, I <laughs> our printer doesn't work from, from the computer very well. Um, just has problems. So this, it's been frustrating printing out worship music and things like that. So I decided I was going to put a note very simply, I need the printer fixed. <laughs> put the sticky note on the computer. He sees that as a need, and he came and he fixed it, and I was very happy. 
Yeah, and no she and she had been, but here's the thing, throughout this whole situation, she had been over the last couple of months, she'd been telling me this is going to drive me insane, you know, this is really making me, you know, angry or irritated and overwhelmed and she would tell me what it's making her feel, but but this next step that she took, deciding to write the note saying, I need this to be fixed, basically for my sanity. Like, if you just say, honey, this is really bothering me, I, ho I wish we could get it fixed one day, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds like a great wish, you know? <laughs> yeah, I feel for you. But if you make it clear to me, you know, I need this fixed from you for my sanity. If you don't fix it, things are going to explode. Like, that's more clear to me. You know, I'm more logical in my thinking, and so I really applaud her for being able to speak clear in that, that moment. And so that's the first part of the point is, is a healthy spouse learns how to express their emotions clearly. And the other part of it is then they choose to put the needs of the, the spouse above their own. And we have a, a Bible verse for this. This is a a verse that uh, I'll give you a little bit of history after I read it. It says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave his life up for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. Now, uh, now this, this verse has some history in our household because what we did leave out is the verse before it, one of my favorite verses, which says, wives, submit to your husbands. <laughs> He, he wanted to include that in our wedding, and I didn't allow it. <laughs> and, and not that I wouldn't now, that I understand it better, but at the time I thought, no, I he doesn't know me. <laughs> now I understand it better, and, and I know that I can trust submitting to him because he's being led by God. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, 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 and we, uh, you know, early on in our marriage, before we got married, we went to something called premarital counseling. I encourage that if you're, you know, young or you're thinking about getting married or uh, go and see a pastor. We, we, we do premarital counseling where we talk about principles. And, and we even had to do, after getting married, more counseling because we had some more issues we needed to work through, mostly her, her stuff. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> And, and uh, you know, we had uh, Steve and Katie Bennetson, who they were pastors at Alpine. Now they're in Ethiopia. They, uh, they helped us understand this verse. What does this mean, wives submit to husbands? Husbands, because that's really what it's saying is, wives, you know, submit to your husbands. Husbands, sacrifice your life like Christ did for the church. Uh, and so do you remember what Steve and Katie kind of explained? What does that mean, wives and husbands' roles, you know, their marital roles? Yeah, so Steve explained it to us saying um, that, say that he wanted to go, and you know, it's a silly example he probably thought of off the top of his head, but I think it's still applicable and obviously stuck with us, but said if he wanted to go somewhere to eat and she wanted to go somewhere different to eat, ultimately he would lay down his life and say, okay, we'll, we'll go to the place you choose. You know, that was his laying down his life in a way. Uh, but ultimately he said when, when it came to submitting, um, it would be, when God put it on his heart to move from Chicago to Utah, um, she was, you know, having to leave family. She was really sad and emotional about it, didn't really agree with it. But ultimately, she submitted to his leading, knowing that he was the leader of the household and he was being led by God. Yeah. So this is, the, and, and really, I just want to explain to you that the whole idea behind marriage in the first place is that God 
wanted to show us how much he loves us. And so the Bible calls people who believe in God and Jesus the bride of Christ, and he's the husband. And he, this analogy of marriage is showing us our relationship with him, that uh, his role was to come and to sacrifice and to save us, sacrifice himself, give up his life so that we could be made clean and washed whole or, or washed and clean by his word. And so that is, there are different roles in marriage. There's no, they're, they're equal, but they're just different roles. And, and this was something that helped us understand how we could better, you know, communicate clearly in marriage. And, and another thing is, is that this really demonstrates how we should put the needs and it really applies both. We should submit to each other and we should also sacrifice for one another also. So while there are roles in the marriage, this applies to both of us. If you're a Christian, um, you should want to sacrifice and put yourself, uh, put the other person's needs above yours sometimes because that's what Christ did for us. And so uh, that moves us on to our next point, which is, you know, there's another thing about communicating clearly uh, it's it, sometimes it's it's difficult um, in in finding out how to communicate with different personalities in the home. And so while my wife can be more direct with me, right? You have to use a little bit of other different tactics with the kids, right? Yes. Yeah. So I've realized one of my sons, if I if I say please at the end of what I am asking, will you please do this? They think it's an option. So they won't do it. <laughs> like, oh, no, I'm good. But I have to say, you know, I have to say it as an order, kind of pick up your clothes or something <laughs> like that. With my other son, he insists that I say please, and he, he just needs me to say please. Then, and then I'll tell him, you know, if he doesn't do it. I said, remember I said please. And then he's like, oh, yeah, you know, and so he'll do it. So I've realized I need to say I need with him, and I need to – be direct with one of the others, and I just please with the other, and so mm. they all kind of receive it differently. Yeah. And that, that leads to our second point, is that an emotionally healthy parent lovingly affirms their kids, but also implements boundaries to prepare them for future independence, okay? So there's a, there's a healthy balance there. You see there's affirmation and boundaries. Another word for boundaries would be discipline, the, the, the highly terrifying word of discipline. Um, and so I think there's a healthy balance there, and an emotional intelligence would say that parents should strive to be equally balanced in both of these things, affirming. Now, I, I will admit that I am more on the disciplinarian, authoritarian side of my parenting, and she's more on the affirming side. So together, we're actually a really great team, but I shouldn't just use that as the excuse that I, I really, you know, my kids need to hear affirmation from me. And I want to pull up a Bible verse that really reminds me of this well when I'm not doing it very well is how God the Father felt about his son when, when Jesus uh, turned 30 years old and it was time to start his ministry uh, he went to John the Baptist and got baptized to basically show the world that, look, I am who I say I am. I, if I'm asking you to do this, I'm going to do it myself, basically. And he got baptized. And here's what happened after Jesus got baptized. It said the father spoke, a dove 
the Holy Spirit fell down on Jesus. So you have the whole Trinity all in one. And, and God makes a big spectacle out of it, basically, to affirm his son. And he says, a voice came from heaven and said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And so I see such, great, uh, such a great analogy of affirming our own kids, like learning to affirm our own children in front of everyone um, and before they're about to do something major or some kind of big responsibility or task. Like Jesus was about to go uh, start this three-year mission and journey of making disciples and being rejected. And it was just a, a tough thing that Jesus was about to go do. And God is affirming in front of everyone, this is my son. I am proud of him. I love him. You, I want you guys to know, and son, I want you to know that I love you and you can do this. You got this. Basically, that's what I feel like he, he is saying right there. And that can really uh, speak to us being affirming uh, to our kids as well. But we also have to have that balance. Would you say that um, the American culture uh, leans towards affirmation or discipline? What would you say, Crystal? I think right now we're kind of in an era of um, affirmation, more affirmation, less discipline, and um, less less setting boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there there's there's... Uh, a fear of doing discipline. I, I think I just had read this. I swear I just read this meme earlier today. And please don't, you know, crucify me when I say this, but it was funny. It said something like, uh, you know, people who don't spank their kids. Uh, I, I can't even remember. People who don't discipline their kids, they grow up to be uh, hellions or something like that. I can't remember the meme, but there is some truth to God wants us to be able to speak into our kids' life, not just continuously tell them, yes, you're doing a great job, or give them the participation medal. I mean, that's the culture we're in, right? Like there's first, second, third, and every other position gets a medal. And if you sat on the bench, you get a medal. And, and so there's this culture of, you know, always affirming, letting kids do whatever they want, whatever feels right, whatever you want to do. But Proverbs 22, 6 is a verse, actually, we have it hanging in Kids Church right now. We, we deeply believe in this verse. It says, direct your children onto the right path, and when they're old, they will not leave it. So it's not a promise that every time that if you raise your kids perfectly the right way, that they will follow the way that you provided for them. That's not a promise. It's more of a principle. If you will be directive with your kids, if you'll show them the way that they should go, then they, they have a better chance of following it, right? What, I mean, what do you think about this, this, this concept of discipline and, and being able to be directive to our kids? Well, I think, I think it's important. It definitely is the harder part. You're, you're not, you know, your kid's going to like you a whole lot more, you know, if you say you can have cake for breakfast, not oatmeal. <laughs> but but loving, you know, being love, you know, loving your kid, you want to have them do the the hard things. You have to, you know, you got to brush your teeth or, you know, mm -hmm. they'll fall. You got to eat the healthy food and you got to um do these do these things and and um we were going to talk about, you know, having kids come to church. Do, yeah, yeah. I mean, oftentimes like 
I, I meet lots of people, or I've heard people say, you know, people that don't come to this church, but people I used to work with and things like that, that say, I'll never reforce, force religion on my kids. You know, maybe you've said that before, right? Like, I'll never force religion on my kids. And maybe there's a good reason why. It's because you grew up in a religion that was so legalistic and forceful, and it caused you to want not want to be involved with church. And, but we can't allow that to be the fear in, in us not influencing our kids to come hear the truth. If we believe that what this our faith is what we believe is that when we die, we're going to heaven. We need a savior. We need to be for, forgiven of our sins. You need to know God. Uh, if we believe that this has changed our lives dramatically, like uh, I think that as parents, we have the most influence over our kids. We need to be willing to nudge them into church, so to speak, right? Yeah. And yes, there's so some statistics that. about that. Yeah. So um, these statistics I had looked up a couple years ago, actually, and I wrote them down on my phone um, just because I thought, um, wow, I mean, it just, it's kind of shocking, but it, it, the statistics said um, that if neither parent goes to church, 6% of youth will grow up and go to church. Um, if, if only the mom in the family goes to church, there's a 15% chance that the youth will grow up and go to church. If the dad is the only one who goes to church, there's actually a 55% chance the youth will grow up and go to church. But if both parents go to church, there's a 74% chance the youth will grow up and go to church. So it's just huge um, to me. Like, Thankfully, our kids love coming to church, um, but even if they didn't, we would still have them come just because we know that you know, we only have them for 18 short years. And we, we care about them. You know, it's kind of like uh, some people do say, you know, they don't want their kids to hate church, so they don't force them to go. But it's kind of like, I force my kids to eat vegetables. And they're going to develop a taste for vegetables, you know. And, um, and it's the same with church, you know, that, that I think my kids will continue yeah. to to continue to go. They and love it. And so. church is even better than vegetables. Yes. yes. Even better than vegetables. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for being a part of this conversation with me. Thank you. Will you guys give her a round of applause? I know I ask her, I ask her to do a lot. She does a lot. She is, she does the majority of the work around the house. She does the majority of the work at church even. So I do, I ask her to do a lot and I'm so very proud and thankful. I want to go over these last two points with you guys today. Uh, we've got just maybe, you know, five to seven minutes left in the message. And so the next point then for applying EQ or emotional intelligence is at the workplace. An emotionally healthy employee or employer treats others with dignity and works to unify, not divide. Now, uh, I used to work um, at uh, several different places all the way up until I was probably 30 years old. I had many secular jobs, and I've been a part of uh, the culture where it's almost like the, the hourly people against the sal salary people. You know, the regular employees against the supervisors, right? There's like this grumbling crowd that points to them and say, they don't know what we have to suffer through. They don't know what we have to go through. They're sitting up in their high lofty 
perches of their offices, you know, enjoying coffee and, you know, getting to sit back and prop their feet up and we're doing all the hard work. I've been a part of that conversation and it's so easy to get sucked into being negative and being the grumbler and being the gossiper, but we're saying that someone with emotional intelligence seeks to run away from those situations. They'll, they'll identify that, hey, this isn't healthy. I know that I'm easily drug into those conversations of gossip or being negative about my boss at work, but I want to leave those situations, and I don't want to get involved with them, right? And, and, and at work, we are as believers, witnesses for Jesus. And so if we go and do everything that everybody else is doing at work, what makes us any different from anybody there? We're supposed to be that light in a dark place. And you know what? Sometimes a bright light, if you look up at these lights, they're somewhat annoying, <laughs> okay? <laughs> because it's too bright. But, but, and so sometimes you're gonna maybe seem or feel like, oh, I'm not an annoying you know, person who preaches the gospel at, at work. They just want to, they want to be able to do what they want to do without anybody kind of making them feel guilty about that. And I'm not trying to say we need to go to work and make everybody feel guilty. But what I am trying to say is that we need to be that shining light that doesn't always participate in the, the grumbling and the gossip and the emotional immaturity responding in certain ways. And the other part of this is, is that we need to be people who uh, work hard, not just giving lip service, not just when our boss walks through, we grab a broom and, oh, hey, boss, I've been working real hard today, you know? But we need to be those people that are working so hard that people are like, wow, this guy, this guy really has great morals and values in his life. I wonder where he gets those from, right? And there's some verses about this, actually, Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about, you know, a work uh, employee-employer relationship. And it says, try, and it's talking to the worker. It says, try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all of your heart. And so the, there's other places in the Bible that says, whatever we do, do it to the glory of God, working as if we're working for him and not for men. And then if there are tensions and struggles, we need to be, again, we've talked about this, the peacemakers. Do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. And so if you have disagreements with your boss or some other guy at work, you know, I know how frustrating it is to work alongside someone for years and you haven't reconciled over some little argument that you had. Uh, and, and both of you are so prideful that you don't want to go let it go and forgive. And so I, I would say, again, emotional intelligence at the workplace looks like us seeking to bring unity, not division, and honoring the Lord and, and working hard as we are witnessing to others about Jesus Christ. And then my last point is that an emotionally healthy friend walks with others authentically through life, celebrating in the good times and in the bad times. So not being fake, not being surfacy. I know all of us can think about those friends we have in our lives that we never get into deep conversations about, but they're always just like, yeah, hey, how's it going? And you're not really friends, but you call them a friend, kind of like Facebook friends, you know? You never really get into anything deep. It's always surfacy, and I like your post, and I like this, and I like that, and great job, or whatever. But 
we need to seek to be friends that are willing to be real with each other. Sometimes it means having hard conversations. We've talked about this. And sometimes it means walking with people through tough times in their own life. Let's look at what the Bible has to say in Romans 12, 9, 10. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. So don't be fake. Don't be a hypocrite in your love. Really love them. And then it goes on to say, you can't really love them. This is how you really love them. Hate what is wrong and hold fast to what is good. So in our friendship, sometimes we have friends that do things that we know are morally wrong and even sin right? And we don't have to, to be a good friend, you don't have to agree with everything that they do. You don't have to affirm that, you know, that's you do you and I'll do me. That's, if that's your truth, this is my truth. No, to be good friends, we tell the truth. And, and honestly, to be Christians, we have to hate sin. You know, God hates sin. Is that surprising to you? That God actually hates sin? He is disgusted by sin. And as Christians, we should hate sin. We should hate our own sin. We should be disgusted by our own sin. And as saved people, we knew that when we came to Jesus, we were so disgusted by our sin and we had no way to get out of it that we knew we needed him to set us free from that sin. And now we go on to live these lives that say, hey, yeah, and I am, I, I'm sick of doing this thing. You know, Paul talks about it in Romans 7. Like, he's like, I'm a believer now, but I still struggle. There's things I, I don't want to do that I end up doing, and there's things that I hate that I keep doing. And the point is, is not for us to become perfect or not to try to tell our friends to become perfect. The point is, is that we have a repentant heart, and we say, I really hate this thing that I've been doing. Can you help me? Or, hey, you know, the way you're living isn't really honoring God right now, but I want to come in and help you. I'm, I'm willing to set aside a couple hours a week to just hang out. Let's talk. Let's dig in the Bible together to hear what God has to say about this topic. This is all about being an authentic, real friend, is sharing the truth. But then the last part of the point is also walking with them and comforting them in the hard times. And here's what Galatians 6 says. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself and you're not that important. You know, how many times have you... Uh, just strangers, right, they've broken down on the side of the road and you're driving past something and you says, man, I should stop and help them, but then you don't, right? You're like, and you make all these justifications in your head, like, I'm too busy, uh, I'm this, I'm that, I've got this going on. Well, I would say to you that when you say those things in your head, that's part of what this verse is saying. Don't think you're so important that you can't sacrifice some time, especially not just for a stranger, but to go help a friend out, okay? So when your friend sends that message, I need prayer right now, right? I need a prayer request, right? You, you should be willing to not, not go, oh my gosh, they're asking for a prayer again. I mean, I'll, I'll see if I can remember it tomorrow morning, right? Or, or say our friend needs some help at their house or they have a flat tire and, and instead you're like, oh my gosh, you know, they should have they changed their tri- tires two months ago like I did. I'm so much smarter than they are, you know. If they would just be like me, then this wouldn't be the issue and so I'm not going to help them, right? But this is a verse of humility 
right? Share each other's burdens, and that is how we obey the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is this, love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the the law that God wants us to follow. And so if we're going to be emotionally intelligent in all all of these different avenues, we got to come back to the basic. What does God want us to do? And I would say out of all these points that we've talked about today, the theme is love. In almost every verse, it talked about real love and loving people in a real, authentic way. We love our spouse when we put them first, when we communicate clearly. We love our kids by affirming them and also giving them boundaries, right? We love our employees and our employers, and we love God when we do the work that we're getting paid to do. We do it with all of our heart. And we build the relationships with people around us. We love our friends when we tell them the truth. And we love them when we share their burdens. I would say, I would wrap up this whole series that it's all about love. It's all about love. And the reason we seek to strive and to to get better at loving God and loving others because God first loved us. And what can we do but love him back in the way he asks us to love him back? And so we worship and we praise God for loving us by going out into the world, becoming emotionally intelligent in our relationships and loving people, even sometimes when they don't deserve it, even sometimes when it seems unfair, even sometimes when it's hard. And so I want to close today. Today is the first Sunday of the month. And every first Sunday of the month, we take communion to remember the death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, to to remember what he did for us by going above and beyond the Son of God, the creator of the universe, God in the flesh, the Bible says, came down, he left his, his heaven, he left his home, and he humbled himself to become like a baby so that we could be right with God. He came and he lived a life that was sinless so he could be that spotless lamb and be sacrificed on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. If anybody is good at love, it is the person of Jesus Christ. And so if you grabbed a cup, one of those cups with you as you walked in, please, uh, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And I'm going to pray and we're going to, we're going to um, take communion together. But before we do that, let me just explain to you what communion is. Communion is a time that we remember Jesus. And, 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 and so what happened is the night before Jesus was crucified, it says that uh, on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup of wine after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. And so we've got, this is grape juice and a wafer that represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we do this, we are, we are saying that I affirm and agree with you, Jesus, that what you did for me was the only way that I could be saved, that I am a sinner and I need you to save me. 
And so we invite everyone who has trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins to take part in communion. If you didn't get one, we've got tables in the back that have them if you want to stand up and go grab one. But we're going to sing this. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing this last song. And during when we start that last song is when you can start taking communion with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming down to save us and to set us free from our selfishness, from our, our disgusting sin, from uh, the things that we fall short in, the, the mistakes that we make. You know, you covered it all by dying on the cross. And so we thank you for that. God, I, I ask for uh, your blessing on us today as we remember you and what you've done and help us to know the significance of us uh, taking this. We're saying that we trust you. We're saying that we believe that what you did was right for me, that I couldn't make it to heaven without you that we needed you to die so that we could be forgiven. So God, help us to remember that and remember you today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.